Hey, how's it going? Today we spoke with Dr. Tumas Ruba, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Merced. He talked with us about his recently published paper on the prediction of affinity between proteins and DNA using machine learning. This was a rather technical episode of the podcast, so if science is not your background and you're just someone who listens to this podcast to get a general overview of the field, then maybe this one is not for you. That said, I hope you enjoy the show. It's great to have you, Thomas. Thank you for joining me today. If you could introduce yourself a little bit for our audience, that would be great. Okay. Uh, my name is Thomas Sirube. Uh, I'm currently, currently at University of California in uh, Merced. Uh, I got my PhD in theoretical physics, and then I transitioned into computational genomics. Um, so my, my work tends to be in the interface of genomics and machine learning and biophysics. Um, so uh, for the work we're going to talk about today, uh, it started, actually started when I was a postdoc in Harman Bussemarkers lab at Columbia University. And uh, now I'm just about to start my own lab here at the University of California in Merced. So that's me. Nice, thank you. So the reason I invited you was to talk about your recently published paper, um, which was predicting protein ligand interactions using machine learning. Um, so I guess we should start by maybe having you introduce that paper a little bit. What was the idea behind the paper? What were the um, overall themes? Yeah, so... Uh, our main focus is to understand the transcription factors and how they work. So first, what, the, what are transcription factors? Uh, so transcription factors are uh, proteins um, and uh, they bind specific targets in the, in the genome. Uh, and when they do that, they regulate the transcription of uh, nearby genes. And uh, they're really powerful. They're really, really important for cellular information processing and decision-making because uh, a single transcription factor can bind many targets in the genome uh, and therefore regulate many genes. So by tuning the activity of a transcription factor, the cell can uh, regulate the whole battery of downstream genes. And so understanding how transcription factors work and how to find a target and what genes they regulate, that's, that's a really central question in uh, molecular biology. Uh, so how do transcription factors find their targets? Well, it's... Uh, it's, it's complicated, the, the many contributors. Um, one important uh, factor is the sequence uh, that it binds. And so transcription factors have uh, DNA binding domains, and these have evolved to bind specific sequences. And so um, if that sequence is somewhere in the genome, there's an increased likelihood that the transcription factor uh, will bind there. And so typically, there's one sequence that's bound really, really strongly. Um, now, uh, but you can also have mismatches uh, compared to this uh, sequence, and you can still bind, but uh, more weakly. And it turns out that these weak, low affinity binding sites, they're actually really important. They're really common, and they can be functional. They can be a uh, hundredfold below optimal strength and still be functional. And uh, if you mutate them to be stronger, you can actually mess up the, the regulatory programs. Right. And so... Uh, the big problem we tried to solve was, uh, given a sequence, can we predict the strength of the uh, binding site, you know, the binding? And not just getting the top sequences, but, not, you know, but all across the affinity range. That was the, uh, kind of the big problem we're trying to solve. And in practice, uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that 
you give me a sequence and I have my equation and I plug the sequence into the equation and you, I give you back the strength. Yeah? So we're doing machine learning to learn some kind of mathematical model that predicts strength given sequence. So that's the, the practical term, what it means. Now, uh, transcription factor binding is, uh, it's really complicated actually. Uh, now the, the sequence of the binding site is really important, but other factors also contribute. Uh, so for example, uh, transcription factors can form complexes with other transcription factors, and, and then they can bind uh, together to the DNA. In doing so, they can read out the longer sequence and kind of be more specific in what they bind. Um, the, the, the chromatin is also really uh, complicated. Um, uh, the DNA can be chemically modified, it can be packed away in nucleosomes and so forth. And so the, it's really uh, quite complicated problems. There's, there's a big uh, push in the field to not only understand how transcription factors bind uh, you know, specific sequences, but to understand these well, this other variables as well. And so uh, that's the big question we're trying to uh, understand here. Um, and so if you zoom in a little bit more, what is it we're actually trying to do here? Well, okay, so we're trying to um, learn these mathematical models that can predict the binding strength as a function of sequence and other variables. And um, there are two main approaches to getting at this question. One is to take the in vivo approach. That's to say, uh, you map where in the genome the transcription factor binds. And this is uh, really powerful. Uh, it's really good for figuring out what the targets of the transcription factor are. Um, but the genome also is also very complicated. And so given that you know that it binds somewhere, it can be really hard to uh, tease out what the causal mechanisms that actually made it bind there, or what it is. An alternative approach is to uh, profile transcription factor binding in vitro. Okay, what does this mean? What this means in a test tube. So what you do is you take your transcription factor, you take some DNA sequence and you mix them together and then you measure the strength of the interaction. And uh, so this is a, a kind of complementary approach that's really powerful for characterizing the intrinsic properties of the transcription factor. Cool. And so this is uh, uh, the approach we're taking in this uh, study. Um, and if you zoom in a little bit more, um, so over the last decade or so, uh, high throughput sequencing has really uh, revolutionized how, how uh, measurements are being made. Um, and in particular, uh, a big class of assays called SELEC sequencing assays have proven really uh, powerful for characterizing how protein finder ligands. And how do these assays work? Well. Uh, the, the starting point is a pool of randomized DNA. Okay, so you have a little test tube and uh, you can synthesize, synthesize uh, random DNA molecules. So um, because there's so many molecules even a tiny tube, uh, there can be billions and billions and billions of uh, unique molecules. It can easily contain all 15 base pair sequences. So it can easily contain all good binding sites and all bad binding sites. And so the idea of this approach is to uh, use this very complicated, complex uh, uh, library of random molecules and uh, profile how they all bind to the uh, transcription factor. And it's, it's really powerful because it's unbiased. You don't need to know what, what a transcription factor binds a priori. You can just you know, profile them all. Um, so that's the, the starting point of the, of, the, of the approach we're taking. And so then, uh, so 
how do you actually use randomized DNA to to uh, characterize this capture factor uh, sequence recognition? Well, so the next step is you mix in the transcription factor in the tube of random DNA. Uh, and it will bind to some sequences and not to other. And so then you uh, separate out the DNA that was bound. Uh, and so, um, so things that are really bad binders won't be there. Uh, things that are so-so binders will be there. And the great binders will definitely be there. Uh, and then you can repeat this cycle over and over again. So you you uh, amplify whatever you was bound, and then you do another round of binding selection, so forth. This is a classic experiment called SELEX. Uh, um, so How do you have get rid of the, the unbound DNA? Yeah, that's a great question. There, there's a number of ways you can do that. Uh, one way is to uh, separate them on a gel. Right. So the bound DNA and the free DNA, they migrate at different speeds uh, on, on a gel. Um, another way is to use magnetic beads. So you, you put the transcription factor in a magnetic bead, hmm. and then you can just wash off whatever is not bound. And you and, can just uh, attach the, the transcription factor to the bead? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Exactly. So the, the transcription factor is hooked up to the bead, and then you bind some, grab some to some DNA, and whatever it doesn't grab on is unbound. Nice. And a third way is to use microfluidics um, um, to mechanically track whatever is found. So those are some ways. And so the sequencing approach, what you do is you extract a little bit of uh, DNA from the initial pool and then from all the selected pools. And so, uh, so modern high throughput sequencing can read uh, millions and millions and millions of molecules. So you can get a huge amount of data. It's really uh, powerful. And so the idea is that uh, the sequencer gives you a text file. You know, if you look through a text file, initially, if you look at the initial uh, pool of DNA, it would just be a random text, random uh, strings of, uh, uh, of letters. But as you go through the selection round, you will start, more, start to see some sequences come, uh, becoming more frequent. And this is because the transcription factor is binding those sequences. And so the idea is that by analyzing how, how the, this pool of random DNA evolves as you select for binders, you can infer um, what sequences the transcription factor binds. Right, yeah. Um, now, so you, you get these text files with uh, 100,000, a million uh, sequences in them. Uh, now, and they're only useful insofar as you actually have an algorithm to take the text and then turn it into... Uh, knowledge about a transcription factor, a predictive model that can predict how any sequence would have been back. You know? So that's the problem we're focused on here. You know? and solving this problem uh, qualitatively is uh, pretty easy, but if you want to be really quantitative and accurate, it's actually a pretty hard uh, problem. So uh, that's the problem we uh, solved uh, in this paper. Okay, what, what are the issues that you said at the end? What how, how is it easy to do it qualitatively, but not quantitatively? Well, it's the number of issues. Um, uh, so one big issue is that uh, the data tends to be extremely, extremely noisy. And uh, so why is that? Well, so I like to think, if you think of a DNA library as a huge bag, uh, with lots of slips of paper in it, you know? Um, and, uh, and what the sequencer does is that it randomly pulls out some of these pieces of paper and reads them, right? And so 
So say that you have a huge piece of a huge bag and there's a billion pieces of paper in it. You know? And the sequencer uh, reads a million of them, right? So a million is a pretty big number, but um, each, each little paper only has a one in a thousand chance of being uh, read by the sequencer, right? right? And so the chance that you'll read any sequence twice is basically zero. And so given that you have this big bag and you pull a million, I pull a million, we're mostly going to get different sequences. And so which sequences we see is uh, basically determined by you know, random uh, noise. Now, as you select more and more, uh, you kind of zoom in on a subset of the sequences, but typically the number of sequences is still so big. So, so uh, it's just random chance which sequence you see. You know? And so that's a, a big challenge. Uh, now, this is a pretty common problem. Um, uh, so, but it's, it's well known in statistics that even though you have very noisy data, uh, if you know where the noise is coming from and you model it and you have a lot of noisy data, you can still overcome the noise and get really accurate models. And so that's kind of what we did. Uh, so that's one challenge. Um, another challenge is that, so remember the goal here is to uh, learn this equation, this binding model that predicts binding given that you give given a sequence. Uh, and on the other hand, we have the sequencing reads, which is the data we're trying to uh, learn from. You know? And the relationship between these two is actually quite complex and nonlinear. Uh, so some of the things that make it kind of complicated is that uh, you have multiple rounds of selection and the, the binding signal, signal kind of accumulates across rounds. Right. Uh, uh, you can also have artifacts, such as something called binding saturation, which um, makes the relationship between strength and binding nonlinear. Given that you have a single piece of molecule, uh, binding probe, a piece of DNA, the transcription factor can bind at different positions in it and so forth. Right. And so if you want to be really quantitative, you need to account for all these uh, things. You know, if you just want to get the, the, the simple answer, you can just uh, look for substrings that are enriched. You know, and it, it kind of works decently well. You know? But if you want to be really quantitative, you need to account for all this. And how do you go about accounting for those things? Uh, well, so we we were inspired by a, uh, a machine learning method called the deep learning or uh, neural networks, uh, and so this is a really powerful uh, machine learning method. It's a family of many methods, and it's been extremely useful for a wide range of problem problems. And and the idea in deep learning is that you. Uh, there's something you want to predict. Say you're Amazon, you want to predict uh, how well a product, if a user is going to buy a product, you know, and you have some predictors, you know, maybe, you know, the past purchases. And so the idea in the deep learning uh, approach is that you start with the predictors at the top and then you feed them into uh, a bunch of artificial neurons. This is inspired by the brain. Uh, and then uh, this first layer of neurons uh, feed into next layer of neurons, the next layer of neurons, the next layer of neurons. And finally, the last layer of neurons uh, uh, produce an output, which is the prediction. And then in deep learning, you optimize the connection between the neurons to get a really good uh, input or predictor to output, which is the variable you're interested in, the good relationship. So that's the idea of deep learning. Uh, so we're kind of inspired by this in that we, we, we did, we, uh, create a multi-layer model that tries to predict uh, binding uh, given uh, sequence. Uh, 
Um, now, the drawback of these kind of deep learning models is that uh, they're really hard to interpret. So given that you look at a specific neuron, it's basically impossible to know what it means. Uh, and so what we did is we, uh, we wanted the different layers uh, correspond to a specific mechanism in, in the causal chains going from sequence to uh, binding. So for example, the first layer to be the binding model that we're actually interested in that predicts the binding strength. The next layer what we wanted to correspond to the assay or the repeated selection. And the final layer um, corresponds to the sequencing. And it turns out that by um, doing some mathematical modeling and imposing uh, domain knowledge on the lower layer levels uh, where you, where you uh, model the assay and the sequencing, then you actually, if you do it in a rigorous way, you can actually force the top layer, which is the binding model, to be really accurate, you know? Hmm. And so that's kind of waving my hands, telling what we did, you know? So you can kind of think of it as a kind of a flavor of deep learning, perhaps, that's kind of really constrained by domain knowledge and modeling, yeah. Okay, so, so you like yep. took, um, I guess, took a lot of data from these cell runs, and is that what you use to train your, your model? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the input uh, in the top, is the sequence we got from the uh, from the um, Celex experiment, and it's trying to predict uh, which round it came from. Basically, for us, is this from the input to later rounds? Yeah. And so, uh, so you can think of it uh, as a classification problem uh, in that way. And, um, and then we optimize the whole model. And it, it turns out if you optimize the whole model to do that particular classification problem, and you also uh, make the lower levels be accurate, yeah. then you force the top layer to correspond to the quantitative binding strength. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so that's the, so that's kind of the second challenge we uh, need to overcome. Like how you actually model these uh, experiments in a you know, quantitative way. Another big challenge is that there are many types of CELEX experiments. And so I mentioned earlier that uh, if you have a, if you're interested in where transcription factor binds, like a really important variable is the target site. Yeah. But the many other things that are important, like um, cofactors or the chemical modification of the DNA and, and many other. Yeah. And so there's a, this big push in the community to understand how these high order effects contribute to transcription factor binding. And um, so variants of CELEX have actually been developed uh, and deployed already to a profile uh, many other you know, variables that impact transcription factor binding. And so a big challenge that we wanted to overcome was to have one algorithm that worked on all of these different kinds of CELEX data. Um, and, uh, and even beyond transcription factor, uh, transcription factors, there are many other protein classes that also recognize sequence. For example, RNA binding proteins rec recognize RNA sequences. Uh, if you think of protein-protein interactions, for example, kinases, uh, they phosphorylate peptide targets in a way that depends on the target sequence. So sequence recognition is a much more, uh, much bigger uh, phenomenon. And uh, assays that are similar to classical select sequencing have been uh, developed and deployed to characterize uh, this. And so we, we wanted to have a kind of a flexible algorithm that can solve all these problems. You know? So that's another challenge uh, that was pretty difficult. And, uh, and then there's uh, like a fourth uh, challenge, which is that um, uh, using CELEX so far, you've only been able to get uh, relative measurements of binding strength. So uh, if you give me two sequences, I can say, well, number sequence two is five times stronger than 
uh, right. sequence one. You know? But if you ask a biochemist, you know, so how, can you measure the strength of these binding sequences? They will not tell you that. They, but the biochemist would uh, measure the the uh, dissociation constant. Right. That measures the absolute strength of the binding. So he would say, well, sequence number two is a two nanomolar strength, and sequence one is a 10 nanomolar strength. So it's weak, weaker. Uh, so it would be nice if you can get uh, like absolute binding strengths out of uh, high throughput sequencing data. Mm. And uh, initially, actually, I thought it would be totally impossible uh, because uh, from sequencing data, you can only kind of estimate the, the relative frequency of, um, uh, of different. Um, um, the sequences, yeah, and so uh, it's kind of uh, explaining how it works is kind of subtle, but we, we figured out a way of modifying the experiment and use machine learning to get at that. We can talk about it tomorrow. What what exactly is the the improvement that the model makes on the current method? Um, well, they kind of a uh, number of improvements. One is that um, uh, our method uh, can really leverage all cell exiles, right? And so, uh, so remember the cell exiles start with random DNA and then you select multiple times. Right? And the early rounds, they have mostly actually low affinity sequences because uh, the way more low affinity sequences than high affinity sequences. So they, they were really common in the early rounds and later rounds, they have mostly high affinity sequences. And so if you want to learn both about high affinity sequences and low affinity sequences, uh, it's nice if you can use all the data. And so I'm, our method uh, systematically integrates information from all the rounds uh, to get uh, models that are accurate over a wider affinity range. So that's kind of one improvement. Um, another improvement uh, is that our method can use uh, different alphabets. Uh, um, so if you think of uh, standard DNA, we have ACGT, but Turns out it's kind of handy to be able to use different alphabets. For example, if you're interested in how DNA methylation impacts binding, um, or what's DNA methylation? Well, um, uh, the, the bases can actually be chemically modified. And so uh, this is quite common and can impact uh, binding. And so if you just have the ACGT alphabet, you can't really encode such modifications. And so by, by extent, using extended alphabet, it can encode uh, method DNA or other chemical modifications and also extending the binding model to have this. You can get binding models which are, we call it methylation aware. That's to say, right. you can not only predict binding to regular DNA, but um, chemical modified DNA. And you say you have an extended alphabet, it's also useful if you're interested in um, uh, interactions with RNA or peptides and so forth. So that's kind of another uh, improvement. Uh, another kind of feature of our approach is that we can jointly analyze multiple experiments. And this is also kind of useful for many applications. Um, so for uh, one application is, well, maybe the same transcription factor has been profiled by many labs and you would want to have a consensus model that uh, optimally explains all data. You know? Maybe the different labs have different artifacts. And so if you learn from all of it, you'll get rid of the artifact and just learn what's real. Right. Uh, another application is if you do this kind of profile DNA methylation. In that case, you typically have a normal experiment and a method experiment. And so uh, being able to learn from multiple experiments is actually really critical for that. Or if you have different transcription effect concentrations or 
treatment times and so forth. And so uh, being able to learn from multiple experiments is, uh, I think, uh, really important. That's a direction the field needs to move in. Uh, and then it's also these absolute KDs um, I told you about before. And it also comes from the ability to integrate multiple sequencing libraries in a really systematic way. Yeah, that's incredible, the, the KDs. How uh, certain is the accuracy of those KDs? Yeah, so we, uh, so we, we profiled uh, uh, a transcription factor called Distillus and uh, uh, and then compared our, the predictions from the model uh, to uh, low throughput measurements using MSA, and they're really underlined now. So uh, you don't you don't seem to lose anything by using like a randomized library in machine learning compared to profiling individual. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, awesome. but that of course depends. Uh, it requires the model to be accurate, right? And so uh, if you have a, a much more complicated systems where the model is not accurate, then of course. Could be less accurate, but for transcription factors, it seems to work really well. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Is there is there much more that you think we've not touched on? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty more, but is there anything um, you wanted to to add? Yeah, no, I, I think we've covered uh, uh, most of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think really the ability to you know, our bottom models seem to be a little bit better you know, in terms of uh, um, accuracy over a wider range. You know, if you're interested in using them, you should go to motivcentral.org and check them out. You know, but um, uh, but yeah, but, but I think the big takeaway in the paper is that uh, we should think more about how we can integrate complementary experiments, especially as we look at higher order uh, features of how protein finds the ligands, um, and also that. Uh, you know, uh, doing a little bit of mathematical legwork uh, when you model the assay can really uh, facilitate new things. And so, uh, for example, the KDC, uh, the reason we could come up with it was because we could really model the assay really accurately and uh, understood how it works. And so I think that's that those are some of the bigger takeaways if you're uh, a modeler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was great. Thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thank you. It was great uh, talking to you. and Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, of course. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode with Tumas Rubert. As always, if you enjoyed, remember to share it with your friends and give us a like on social media and a rating on your podcasting app. All that stuff goes a really long way. Follow us to stay updated with the new episodes. There'll be a new one every week. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.